0: Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message.
1: All right, today we're concluding our series, Church in the Wild, a chapter-by-chapter chapter study of the books of First and 2 Peter, and I believe we saved the best for last. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse three. Most importantly, I wanna remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. And he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. He used water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They're being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. Verse eight, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, it is because he is patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed wants everyone to repent but the day of the lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of god and hurrying it Along, On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Pray with me now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Mighty name, the name that is above all names. today we ask that you be strong in my weakness because I need you. May nothing inside of me hinder the flowing of your word. I pray that you would make ready the hearts of men to receive the word of truth. Mold us and shape us like the potter forms the clay, more and more into your image and likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The context behind 2 Peter chapter 3 is obviously Peter is the author. But let me remind you that Peter was a disciple. Later, he became an apostle. For three years, he walked with Jesus, talked with him, saw every aspect of his life and ministry. These words that we're reading today, they are not secondhand, thirdhand accounts of what Jesus said. This is coming from an eyewitness who walked with Jesus and knew him very personally. These words today are straight from Peter himself. He's writing to scattered believers throughout Asia Minor that are facing violent and merciless persecution under the Roman Empire. He's writing to them. The general theme of Second Peter is to warn them about false teachers and false doctrines that will creep their way into the church. But in the third and final chapter, he transitions to remind them of the biblical prophecies of old speaking to eschatology, aka the end of the age. He's reminding them of how the world is going to end and he comforts them by reminding them that Jesus is coming again. Anybody thankful that we serve a soon coming king today? In the midst of their persecution, he's imploring them to continue to live a holy life in a hostile world. And the light at the end of the tunnel is that your trouble won't last always. Jesus is coming again. Over the next few moments, we're gonna work our way through 2 Peter 3, and I'm gonna extract verses and points out of this text that I believe are applicable to our life today. The first one is that scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. Tell your neighbor, scoffers will come. A scoffer is somebody who is a critic of our faith. A scoffer is somebody who belittles or makes fun of the Christian doctrine and theology. And first of all, Peter addresses that in the last days, scoffers will come and their voice will be amplified. Church, I need you to understand that unequivocally, without a doubt, you are living in the last days, all right? From a New Testament vantage point, the moment that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the final chapter of human history began. You are living in the last days. Most Bible scholars and theologians agree that today we are not just in the last days, but very likely we're in the last minutes, the last seconds, the last moments before Jesus comes again. May I remind you that 2,000 years ago, as Jesus preached to a captive audience, he warned them that it was time to repent for the kingdom is at hand. If the kingdom was at hand 2,000 years ago, how much closer are we today? There's never been a generation closer to the coming of the Messiah than this one. He is a soon coming king. And we must make ready our hearts to receive the Savior of the world. Make no mistake about it. These are the last days. Scoffers have come. Now, he writes this not to discourage the early church, but he writes this to encourage them. He's telling them, don't be discouraged by the naysayers. Don't be discouraged or let your faith be diminished by those who scoff and mock at the truth of the gospel. Tell your neighbor, the one you've been ignoring, say, don't be discouraged. <laughs> Tell them with some attitude. All right, don't be discouraged. Do you realize that the naysayers, the haters, the critics of our faith, really, they're fulfilling scripture as they make a mockery of our faith. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great minds, one of the great preachers throughout history is quoted as saying this. Every time a blasphemer opens his mouth to deny the truth of revelation, he will help confirm us in our convictions of the very truth which he denies. The Holy Ghost told us by the pen of Peter that it would be so, and now we see how truly he wrote. Isn't that beautiful? He's literally saying, this prophecy is being fulfilled As the scoffers scoff, as the mockers and the critics make fun of our faith and belittle us, they're literally fulfilling the scripture. So don't be discouraged by what they say. Be encouraged that their actions are actually validating the scripture itself. I want you to look a little bit closer at verse three. Let's look back at it one more time. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth. Watch this and following their own desires. This is really important. Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is highlighting what is really at work in the hearts of the scoffers, the haters, the critics. A lot of times our critics of Christianity pass it off as an intellectual disagreement. They present themselves as being very highly educated, very lofty. How could you believe in an antiquated, ancient book like the Bible? They try to make us feel inferior to their intelligence. But I want to show you, Peter is illustrating to us, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem in the hearts of the scoffers. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. It's not that there's good logic and reasons to trust in Christ. It's that they, in and of themselves, they pursue their own desires. And to confess Jesus is Lord means that they are not God and meaning that their life would have to alter and change. They see, but they don't want to see. This is the truth. I have a a friend who is actually one of the greatest apologists on planet Earth, Dr. Frank Turek, and he's actually preached here at our church. I fangirled. I was like, could you just sign my Bible or anything, right? Um, And Dr. Turek, he travels to universities all across the nation, and he debates openly atheists, agnostics. He makes a case for Christ. He's very famous for taking people's questions. Nothing is off the table. And in the middle of some of his most heated debates, he will infer this question and he'll say, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And to our amazement, a great many people who hear that still say, no, think of it. He asked them if Christianity were true, would you be a Christian? And the audacity of a great many multitude, they still say, no, I would not. Why does Dr. Turek ask this question? For the same reader that, for the same reason that Peter writes. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. They see, but they don't want to see. They know, but they don't want to know because they follow their own desires and they do not want a Lord. They do not want a King to dictate how their life should be lived. It's a powerful church. It's powerful. John chapter three, verse 20. If you're slow flipping, just look on the screen. Here's what it says. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. The darkness hates the light. They don't wanna be exposed. They don't want their life to change. They wanna be in control and dictate their own future and their own destiny. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem with the heart. The scoffers made two arguments in 2 Peter 3, and they're both very similar. The first one is this. They said things have always been the same, even since our ancestors. Nothing has ever changed. Yet you claim Jesus is coming again. The second argument recorded in 2 Peter 3 is Christians have talked about the coming of Jesus for 2,000 years, and he's not come yet. So they say, well, where is he? Have any of you ever heard critics and people mock our faith and say, where is he? Okay, this is nothing new. This is the same critique and argument that was being used 2,000 years ago. But I wanna remind you today, Proverbs chapter three, verse 34 says this, the Lord mocks the mockers, but he is gracious to the humble. How many of you know it's a bad thing if the Lord mocks you? You're going to reap what you sow, all right? We don't want to be on the side of the enemies of God, all right? But I think Romans chapter one actually captures the heart of the scoffers better than anything else, and it writes in perfect harmony with 2 Peter 3, and here it is, Romans 1, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. Instead, they became utter fools. I love that. Romans 1 says, they knew that he was God, yet they refused to worship him or acknowledge him as God. Instead, they formulated and concocted their own ideas of what God was like, and their minds became dark and confused. Everybody say confused. Confused. If there is one word that marks the spirit of the age in which we live, it's confusion. And don't mind me while I venture into politically incorrect waters. But today, in 2023, our world is marked by confusion. I say this with all love and all sincerity and humility in my heart, But the truth is, our world, those who mock and criticize our faith and doctrine, they're confused. They no longer understand the basics of gender or identity or their own purpose or morality itself. Those who claim to be wise, their mind has become darkened and confused. With all due respect, 1 Corinthians 14 says, God is not the author of confusion. And if God's not the author of confusion, I'll give you two guesses who is, and the first one don't count. (laughs) Satan is the author of confusion. He perverts and distorts. He is not a creator. He is not creative. He exists to pervert and distort and compromise what God intended for his holy purpose and glory. The Lord has not given us a spirit of fear or confusion, but of power, love, and a sound mind, okay? Our world is marked by confusion, just like the scripture foretold, yet they, claiming to be wise, reveal themselves as the actual fools. 2 Peter 3 goes on, to say that they will suppress the truth of God in two ways. First, they suppress him as creator. Second, they suppress him as the judge of the universe. I'm gonna show you this in just a moment. I wanna talk about creation for just a minute and how the scoffers actually, they make a mockery of creation and they suppress the truth of God. How many of you know, if you're an atheist, agnostic, or just a scoffer of Christianity in general, you're going to have to come up with some reasonable explanation for why humanity exists and why we're on dusty old planet earth to begin with, right? And for those of you who haven't been offended already, here we go. Most of them, their idea for how everything came into being is evolution. Oh, we started as a single cell organism, like a salamander type deal. And then like over a very, very long time, we developed consciences and mental ability and awareness. And, you know, we are who we are today, but we started as a single cell salamander. Okay, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, but there is a major difference between micro and macro evolution. Major difference, okay? And even if you believe in evolution, you still cannot answer the overarching question of all, which is where did life originate? Okay, if we started as a single cell, good for you, all right? But where did it begin? The atheist, unbelieving, scoffing worldview is that life spontaneously combusted out of nothing, from nothing, for no reason and no purpose, okay? And then they call you and I intellectually inferior. (laughs) Isn't that the irony, right? But no, I'm serious. And not to oversimplify it, but there are two major worldviews. The the, the atheist says, life spontaneously combusted for no reason, out of nothing, from nowhere, for no reason, in the ancient past. And the Christian worldview is that there is a transcendent God who exists outside of time, space, and matter a moral being who created order and design and gave life to every living thing and set creation into motion for his glory and honor. Which one sounds crazier? I'm telling you, Romans one warned you that the scoffers, they would claim to be wise, but instead they would reveal themselves as foolish. All right. They suppress. Listen, I'm about to, I'm about to talk to you for a minute. These unbelievers, the scoffers, they suppress the truth of order and design in the material universe. You could look at creation and see the golden ratio, the Fibonacci sequence, order, a calendar, a 365 day calendar, 24 hours in a day. The earth tilts perfectly at just the right degree on its axis to provide. Summer, winter, spring, and fall. And if you live in Charlotte, you experience all four in the same day, okay? But that's your blessing, okay? But I'm telling you, there is a world of order, a world of design. But the scoffers suppress the truth of creation. Do you realize that you yourself, your own body, is the greatest case for a creator? You are the most complex form of matter in the universe, your nervous system, your cardiovascular system, your blood vessels, your body, your mind is the greatest testament to a miracle working God. And the scripture says, You are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image and likeness of God Almighty. With all due respect, the world's ideology and their worldview is demonic. Because if there is no God, there is no purpose in life. If there is no God, then all of this is for nothing. You live your 77 years, and then you cease to exist eternally that is what satan wants you to think so that you will live for the moment following the impulses of your carnal nature but i'm here today to tell you don't suppress him any longer there is a mighty god who is triumphant in power and he created you for his glory and for his purpose you're fearfully and wonderfully made god has a plan and a purpose for your life and your decisions matter. Your life matters. You are not a random mass of molecules in motion. You bear his image and likeness. Your life matters. They suppress creation, and they suppress God's judgment. The scoffers look back at Noah's flood, and they make fun of it. They say, how could, it, how could this ever happen? And because in their lifetime, they've never experienced widespread judgment on earth, they assume blindly that it will never happen again. But 2 Peter 3 warns you that God is going to judge the earth again. The wrath of God is coming to planet earth again. He flooded the ancient world but the future will not be subject to water, but to fire. Why does the earth have to be destroyed? Why? Because sin has marred and corrupted every corner and crevice of planet earth. Fire is a purifying agent, where after the millennial reign of Christ, the earth will be cleansed by fire. Every mark of pollution, every mark of sin's greed and men's pride and arrogance in the world will be eradicated and God will recreate planet earth once again, where he will reign in righteousness and majesty eternally. This is the word of God. Three people clapping and they write and they're right. Verse nine, Jesus is coming again. Tell your neighbor he's coming again. I'm about to take a lap. I mean, I'll tell you what, one of these days I'm going to really take a lap. I want to run. I'm excited about this. You know, the critics say, well, you know, we've always heard Jesus is coming again, but where is it? Peter answers it. He says, the Lord tarries out of great mercy and patience for the world. In other words, if Jesus were to come right now, there would be a great falling away, for many in the world love the things created more than the creator himself. And if he split the clouds in glory right now, there would be a multitude who perish eternally. It is his mercy that he tarries. How many of you are thankful that he didn't come five years ago? Like four and a half of you. Like, and I know you're excited, you want Jesus to come again, and I am with you and like hold on to that, but like just be thankful he didn't come last year or five years ago because would he have found you ready? This year in this church, over 530 people have publicly (laughs) repented of their sin and given their life to Jesus. And I can tell you, I don't say that in a braggadocious way. I say it humbled because good sermons don't do that. The spirit of the Lord is drawing people to himself. But I tell you, I bet you all of them are thankful he didn't come last year because they would have missed him. It is God's mercy that he is patient. Oh, and feel this church. He's merciful even to the mockers. I'm taking a lap right now. It's a small lap, but I'm taking it. Okay. Like he is merciful even to those who mock him. There is no other faith like this. There is no greater love than this. And I want to be very clear with you. Every person in this building and watching online, every one of you, you fall in one of two categories. You're either God's children or you're his enemy. There's no third cousin there's no, like, I know him by acquaintance. Like, grandmama knows him, so my dad was a preacher, so I'm in there. No! You're either his son or his daughter, or you're his enemy. There's no middle of the road. You know, I hear preachers, well meaning, they'll say, well, everybody is God's child. No, they're not. Flag on the play. Biblically, that is incorrect. The scripture teaches that every human on earth is his creation, but not everyone is his child. The gospel of John says to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be the sons of God. What that means is to as many of you as repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, You became the sons and daughters of God. You used to be his enemy. You transitioned from the enemy's camp into the adopted family of the Most High God. People people also get hung up when the Bible talks about biblical adoption. They're like, well, I, I, you know, I don't want to be adopted. I want to be like, No, 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 listen, you can't pick the children you have biologically, but those who you adopt, you pick them out by name. You say, I'm going to take that one right there. That one belongs to me. You see, you see the intentionality of the scripture. All right. He chose you. You used to be his enemy, but now you're his son by means of the cross of Calvary and your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that Jesus is coming again. He tarries because of his mercy, but even his mercy is directed towards his enemies. Do you remember the cross? Hopefully you do. Um, If you don't, I'll remind you. 2,000 years ago, on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, a wooden cross was erected between heaven and earth where an innocent man, Jesus Christ, bore the iniquities and transgressions of the world. Laid upon him, nails driven through his hands and his feet, a crown of thorns thrust into his skull. He died a death of asphyxiation, literally drowning on the cross. As he struggled to breathe with every breath, death encroached closer. The death of the cross was so excruciating. New words had to be derived to describe the suffering of its victims. And as he hung between heaven and earth, suffering for our iniquity, beneath him at the feet of the cross were Roman soldiers who gambled for the remaining garments that were left clinging to his body. And what did Jesus say to his enemies? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The world has never seen a mercy like this. Islam cannot claim a mercy like this. Buddhists, Confucius, nobody else, no other religion can claim a love like this. The world has never seen anything like it. And there is no greater love than this, than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died even for his enemies. I wish i get somebody who's grateful, who wants to praise him. We were his enemy. I was his enemy. Sin is a bigger deal than you think it is. It's anarchy, rebellion, treason in the highest degree against the creator of heaven and earth. We deserved hell and the wrath of God. But while we were dead in our sin, he didn't wait for us to get perfect or to clean up our life. No, while we were his enemies, he loved us and died for us on the cross. This is the greatest message the world will ever hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says that the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. It's a little bit of a negative connotation but don't get lost there. What he's actually saying is that no one knows the hour of the return of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever heard date setters? People are like, he's coming in August 23rd, whatever. Okay, just take that right there and dropkick it because you can rest assured he is not coming on that day. So stop trying to set dates and all that stuff. He's gonna come unexpectedly. Now hear me, this has twofold purpose. It's unexpected for the world who's lost and dying. To them, they, should, they will be caught off guard in their sin like the days of Noah. You read it. They mocked him. They scoffed him right up until it began to rain. So they will us. But his coming should not catch the saints by surprise because we are looking for him. We are awaiting his return and arrival. I want to read to you the gospel of Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. The disciples were asking Jesus, when will you come again? What will the end of the world be like? And this is what he said, verse 36 of Matthew 24. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows when the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day in those days Before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties, weddings, right up until the time Noah entered his boat. The people didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. So you too must keep watch for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. This is profound, church. I want to ask you a question. Are you ready to meet him? I was talking to a friend this week and they looked at me with tears in their eyes and they said, I'm not ready to meet him. If he were to come right now, I would be lost in my sin. I want you to hear me loud and clear. The reason Peter writes this text to scattered believers facing persecution is he wants them to live with an urgency. He wants them to understand that tomorrow is not promised. Today is the day of salvation. Make ready your hearts. Live for Jesus today. Don't put off tomorrow what needs to be done today and right now. And we should follow him and live for him with an urgency right now. You say, well, he he may tarry another 2,000 years. Yes, he may. But he could come before today is finished. The point is, we should all live like tomorrow may never come. And make ready your heart to meet the master. I want to highlight one more thing in Matthew 24, because I think it's very pertinent to today's climate. In Matthew 24, Jesus elaborated in verse 8. He said that in the last days, there'll be earthquakes in diverse places. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. There will be pestilence and violence. By the way, pestilence means pandemics anybody live through 2020? He said, these things will come and you'll know that the time is drawn near. Now the critics and the scoffers of Jesus's day, they said, well, there've always been wars and rumors of wars, and there's always been pestilence. There's always been earthquakes in strange places, but don't miss what he says in Matthew 24. Jesus says, it will be like a woman Travailing in labor pain, giving birth. Now, as a single man, I had no idea what that meant. But I've had two little babies, two homies now, and I can tell you a little more. When the contractions become more frequent and when the contractions become more intense, you know he's on his way. Jesus is not stating the obvious. Yes, there have been wars and rivers. What he's saying is, As these things increase in frequency and as these things increase in intensity, your redemption draws near. You may not know the day, but you will know the season. Church, look around you. Open your eyes. Even in your lifetime, things are becoming more frequent. They're escalating in intensity. Israel is at war right now. Yes, we should pray for the Palestinians. We should pray for the Jews. They all need Jesus, but the Jews are his chosen people, like it or not. I'm not saying he's coming right this second, but he could, but the point is stay ready and live ready because Jesus is a soon coming King. Is this helping anybody? (laughs) Scripture goes on to say in second Peter chapter three, that to the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Tell your neighbor his timing is not mine. What is Peter saying here? Some people, like the date setters I mentioned a moment ago, they've tried to form these mathematic arithmetics to say, okay, well now let's just do the math on a thousand years and days and we're going to project when he's going to come back. Flag on the play, stop it. No, no, no. What Peter is saying is very powerful though. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying that just like your God is omnipresent, he's at all places simultaneously at all time. He's not just limited to geography. His omnipresence transcends even time. In the past, he is there. In the present, he is here. In the future, he is there. Remember how he introduced himself to Moses in the Old Testament? I am the I am. In other words, I am transcendent beyond time, space, and matter. In the past, I'm there. In the present and in the future, I am here. Just as he's omnipresent all places, all times simultaneously, so he is throughout history and even into the future. He's already seen your end from the beginning. You can trust him. I may not hold, know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Come on, somebody, if you're grateful for a God who's already been to the future. He's transcendent. And one other powerful reality here is that Peter is reminding his audience that the cross is still fresh on the mind and the heart of the Father. It's as though Jesus died just the day before yesterday. His mercy is still fresh on his mind and where sin abounds, his grace much more and his mercy still triumphs over judgment. What a great and mighty God. Verse 12 says, well, starting in verse 11, since everything around us is gonna be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. Tell your neighbor, hurry it along. So I love this. This It's actually kind of funny. Uh, 2 Peter 3 is like, the earth is going to pass away. The elements are going to burn up in fire. The sky is going to roll up like a scroll. And we should hurry that along. (laughs) It's like, whoa, that's intense. But actually what Peter's saying here is he's saying you should hurry along the coming of Christ. Now, your reaction was the exact same as the earlier services. They're like, what? You mean hurry is coming? Yes, I mean hurry is coming. You say, me? Yes, you. Why does he tarry? Second Peter 3 told you, so that the lost can be saved. It's God's will that none would perish, but all find everlasting life. So how do we hurry the coming of Christ? We participate in the Great Commission. When souls... And make disciples every soul that is saved the kingdom of heaven advances and draws nearer that's how we hurry along his coming i want you to look at the front of this stage these are not christmas decorations gone bad these are post-it notes with the names of your lost family members friends and co-workers you want to help us hurry along the coming of the king then do three things with us over the next several weeks. On December the 9th and 10th, that's our Christmas weekend here at Vision Church. We're doing seven services over two days. We'll be able to serve 2,000 people the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the next three weeks, I want you to intercede for these people. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the Spirit of God would draw them to himself. Number two, invest in their life relationally. Faith without action is dead. You can pray for them all day, but until you pick up the phone or reach out, it's lacking. And then number three, invite them. Invite them into a relationship with Christ. And if you're not confident doing that, invite them to Christmas at Vision Church where they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ simply presented in truth and in love. The gospel still works. Do you believe that? It still changes the human heart. And the gospel is the only hope for this wicked fallen world. You want to hurry along the coming? Participate in the Great Commission. The ministry is not mine. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you're waiting for me to get everybody in Charlotte saved, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. That was never God's plan. His plan was to equip, resource, and deploy the local church into a world that is lost and dying. Almost done. Scripture says in verses 10 through 11 that we should not be infatuated with this world because it is passing away. Peter says it's all gonna melt. It's all gonna burn away. So don't live for the moment. Live for eternity. Don't set your heart on the things created. Set your heart on the creator himself. Buying a nicer house, a faster car, climbing the corporate ladder, nice and good, but it will never satisfy you. And everything on this earth is perishing. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in it. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God shall abide forever. Don't live for the moment Live for eternity. What would it profit you if you gained the entire world but lost your soul? You can't take any of it with you. The only thing you take with you are the people that you brought to Jesus. That's it. A golf clap in the back, but they are right. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you'll get neither. I'll say it again, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Scripture warns us that judgment is coming to this world. Set your mind on the things above and this should affect the way you live. When you take your mind off of the things of the world, winning souls becomes at the forefront of your life's mission. When you live like tomorrow may never come, like Jesus is a soon coming king, You're quick to forgive. You're quick to extend mercy and you're quick to ask forgiveness and mercy of those that you've wronged. Life is better and more abundant when we live like Jesus is a soon coming king. Do you realize that the early church in the book of Acts, they genuinely believed that Jesus was coming within their lifetime. They were selling everything. They were giving their possessions away. They were all in for the advancement of the gospel. And you know what happened? God used 12 men to turn the world upside down. Powerful and amazing things happen when the church is awakened from her slumber and begins to live like Jesus is coming soon. That's a good place to clap right there. That's a good place. And by the way, I'll just say it again, when you clap at Vision Church, you're not clapping for me. I don't deserve your applause. I didn't write the Bible. I'm just a messenger. But the word of God does deserve a response from the earth. It does, it, re- it deserves it. And in closing, and I really mean it, when the keyboard's behind me, you know we're about to land a plane, all right? That's a pro tip right there. Sometimes, yeah. God wants everyone to be saved. I'm gonna say something that might offend you, but what else is new? There's a doctrine that's very popular in Christianity. It's been popular for centuries. And it teaches that God created certain people for destruction and certain people, the elect, for salvation. God is not a Calvinist. And he's not an Arminian either. It is God's will, according to 2 Peter 3, that none should perish. He tarries out of mercy. Oh, and what's that other verse? Oh, the most famous one in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but find life everlasting. I don't know about you today, but I'm grateful that Jesus died for every and any whosoever that will receive him. Come on, somebody, and give him praise if you're thankful. Jesus didn't die for the religious. Jesus didn't die for the perfect. Jesus didn't die for the people that had their life together. He came, he bled, and he died for any and every whosoever that would believe upon his name. Every sinner, every lost person, every enemy. He came for every whosoever. And this morning, as you're in this room, Heaven stands open wide. Its gates are open to you. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. He will accept you just the way you are. You don't have to get perfect and clean your life. You come to him just as you are, and he will transform you. He will change you. He will make you new by his Spirit. So I want you to pray with me all over this place. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We repent of our sin. That means we're turning our back on our old life. I don't wanna live this way any longer. I don't wanna be controlled by this addiction, this pride, this greed, this arrogance, this lust, this drug problem. I don't want this to be a part of my future. I turn my back to my sin and I put my face towards heaven. I repent, God, have mercy on me. I admit that I've loved the things created more than the creator himself, and I need your mercy. I believe that 2,000 years ago, you loved me so much that you gave your only son who knew no sin. And on the cross, he became my sin. The transgressions and the iniquities of the world were laid upon him. He suffered and died and his blood was divine. His blood takes away the sin of the world. His body was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And today, I give you my past, present, and my future. God, I wanna serve you and live for you the rest of my life. Change my heart and my desires. Help me to love what you love and despise what you despise. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray and all God's people said, amen.
0: Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.